You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On July 18, 2018, a University of Iowa student would disappear, seemingly without a trace, while she was home for the summer in her hometown of Brooklyn, Iowa. For a month, police and everyone else were at a complete and utter loss as to what had happened to this young lady, and there seemed to be no leads in the disappearance. She had sent a message to her boyfriend, went for a jog, and did not return home. This case would eventually be solved because of technology in the form of surveillance cameras. Today, we will talk about what happened, who was behind it, and the fallout when the truth was uncovered. Hello, and welcome to episode 36 of Gone But Never Forgotten, Gone Traveling, The Murder of Molly Tibbetts. And welcome back to GBNF. As Lanch mentioned at the top, this will be a gone traveling episode. We definitely enjoyed delving into crimes and stories from other places in the world that we are certainly not as well versed upon. This is one of those. I assume that you didn't know of this case before you started to research it. Strangely, no. I mean, I guess it's not that strange to most people that a missing person and murder case from small town Iowa in the U.S. was not on my radar. But this is me that we're talking about. I certainly spend too much time delving into true crime. Yes, you certainly can be strange at times. Well, I actually think that strange is my normal state of being. I can be quote-unquote normal at times, but... Nobody knows that better than you. So, I digress. How are you? I am doing wonderfully, thank you. This has been a crazy busy week for us as my sister got married. So, quick shout out to Michelle and Anthony. Thank you for the wonderful time and it was truly a beautiful wedding. And a beautiful bride as well. She was, of course, only beaten out by you. Looking for bonus points today, huh? I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just being honest with you. Alright, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I just want to take one quick minute to thank all of you out there for listening to us. Please remember that if you like what you're listening to, you can sign up over on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash podcast and help us and the podcast out. The tiers start at a very low price, only $1.50 a month, and as long as you join in on our supporter level, which is $3 a month or a higher level, 
you also get all of our shows early and ad-free to listen to. That's certainly a benefit. So help us out and we will continue to get better and better and do more and more interaction with you, our fans. Check us out over on Patreon or on social media if you just want to say hi. Without any further adieu, let's get down to the business and what we all came here for. Molly Cecilia Tibbetts was born on May 8th of 1998 in San Francisco, California to Rob Tibbetts and Laura Tibbetts. The couple had two other children as well. Molly had an older brother, Jake, and a younger brother, Scott. When Molly was in the second grade in California, her parents were divorced and she moved to Iowa with her mother and her two brothers. Rob would keep a close relationship with his children over the years and he would last see Molly at his wedding in June of 2018. Molly is described as a fun-loving and boisterous young lady who had a real zest for life. Video footage of her shows a lovely young lady who was working through the summer at a daycare in her hometown. Her older brother Jake perhaps described her best by saying, quote, She had the biggest heart. If anyone needed it, she was willing to do anything. She hated to be sad and hated for others to be sad, unquote. I think that everyone knows someone like Molly. That person that never seems to be down and never seems to have a bad day, but instead focuses all of her attention on trying to make her life and the lives around her better. She sounds like she had that infectious personality that we always hear so much about. It seemed for sure like nobody had a bad word to say about Molly. I know that often we joke a bit in the true, true crime community about every person always being the best person ever. But there's obviously a lot to show that Molly truly was an amazing person. That is what stifled and confused police right away when she went missing. Usually there is some kind of warning sign if someone runs away, but even when someone runs afoul. I think we like to think that it's not just random like it was in this case, but we'll get into that more later. Growing up, Jake and Molly were in high school together in Brooklyn, Iowa, and they were always competing together in track meets. Jake competed in shot put, and Molly ran distance races. They both went on to attend at the University of Iowa. Molly was studying psychology. As we mentioned at the top, Molly was back home in Brooklyn for the summer and working. She was staying with her longtime boyfriend, Dalton Jack, and she left the house for an evening jog on the night of July 18th, 2018, something that her family would say she did every night. She was last seen around 7.30 p.m. and would be reported missing by her family when they got news that she did not show up for work the next day. Dalton said that he received a Snapchat message from Molly earlier in the evening but that he had opened it around 10.30 p.m. He would say that it looked like she was inside of the house still when the photo was taken and sent. He said that she didn't respond to any of his messages after that, including his daily message to Molly, Good morning, beautiful. That would be the last known contact that anyone would have with Molly. At the time that Molly went missing, Dalton was at work in another town roughly 210 kilometers away. 
As it always is in cases like this, time was of the essence, and the family and friends and police all got to work to try and find out what had happened to Molly. Almost immediately, the FBI was called because all of the signs pointed to an adult abduction having taken place. Unfortunately, all of the searches, posters, canvassing, and work that was poured out for about four or five weeks, though, came back empty. Police in multiple states were investigating hundreds of leads that were pouring in for the case. There was even a report of a sighting of Molly at a truck stop in Kearney, Missouri, but no one was able to locate Molly anywhere. Every single lead was coming up as a dead end. All that was known was that Molly had gone for a jog and nobody knew where Molly ended up. There was no video footage turned in to police to show Molly. Police realized, though, that using technology, hopefully they could find some new answers or even find at least more questions. Something, anything, that could help them along. Police got her password for her phone, which everyone knew that she always took with her. They purchased a new phone and cloned her device using her passwords. They were able to track Molly on her jog on County Road 385. What police were able to find out was actually pretty crazy. Police were able to track Molly's speed along the road as she jogged, and it showed her moving at a jogging speed. Suddenly, the phone stopped tracking her for a few minutes, likely between cell towers, and when she got serviced again, the phone showed that she was moving at a vehicle speed. It was obvious then to the police that they knew roughly where she had been abducted from. At that point, the investigation started to narrow down around certain areas within Brooklyn. Those spots included Dalton's house, a truck stop, a car wash, and two farms that were in the area where Molly had been jogging. At the same time, the community, the state, and the country all rallied around this story of Molly and donated their money to the cause. Over $350,000 was raised. The money was offered as a reward on the condition of her safe return. I always find this really cool when stuff like this happens, you know. Um, so I actually didn't know um, that there is kind of provisions set aside for stuff like this. I don't know if it happens like this here. Um, but yeah, like they raised $350,000 and basically people were told like their money would be given if, if Molly was found alive. But if she wasn't, I think they had the choice of having their money returned to them or else donated to a charity that was obviously something similar to this case. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I actually really love that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Very cool. That's great that it could like no matter what, you can still make a difference. They certainly hoped that the money would grab the abductor's attention. They hoped that this was still a case of an abduction, and usually abductions are done in some part for money. Obviously, the police investigation continued. Dalton, uh, Molly's boyfriend, was looked at as a person of interest in the case briefly, but all things seemed to be relatively good with the couple, and Molly had spoken often of marrying Dalton. There was one issue um, in, from the past where Dalton had cheated on Molly earlier in their relationship, but the couple had moved past that. As mentioned, 
Dalton was a long way away when Molly went missing also, so he would be quickly cleared in the case. Police continued to canvass the area around where they determined that Molly had ran, and they continued to search all avenues to try and find evidence, video, a witness, or anything. Finally, they did come across video footage from a home that had four cameras set up around the property. What they found was footage of a person jogging in the distance that they believed must have been Molly because of the time and area all matched up to where they suspected Molly would have been. The other thing that police noticed on the surveillance video was a black Chevy Malibu that was seemingly in the neighborhood and going around in circles for quite some time. The car had been seen going back and forth quite a few times after Molly was seen on the camera. As investigators studied the footage and the car, they realized that there were some things that made the car stand out. This was a great break because obviously a black Chevy Malibu is not uncommon as a vehicle. It was noted that the side view mirrors, for instance, on the car were not standard issue for the vehicle. The day after they realized this about the car, they got their first break. An off-duty officer drove right past the exact car from the video. The driver of the vehicle was Christian Bahina Rivera. He was an undocumented immigrant from Mexico working in the area on a large farm. He told officers that he did not speak any English. He was brought in for questioning, but the police department had to scramble to find a Spanish-speaking officer to interview Christian. When they found an officer that could interview him, the interview went on for 11 hours. That's crazy. And, like, I didn't cover it too much, but that's one of those things that came up um, a lot uh, in terms of the defense for Christian. Um, basically, you know, they were saying, like, after 11 hours, this guy was probably starving, um, in the video footage, you can see that he's tired, and it would be something that would be beaten down by the defense team to try to get him off in the end. Of course. For a large part of the interview, police did not get much information at all out of him. He said that he didn't know Molly, and said that he had not even heard too much about the missing persons case in general. That is when police decided to show him the one piece of real evidence that they had. Still photographs of Molly running, and his car in the same area just moments later. Suddenly, Rivera seemed to open right up. He told officers that now he remembered who Molly was, and he even said some weird stuff, like he said that he had a poster of Molly hanging up in his home from the missing persons posters. Even though he said that he didn't know her earlier on in the interview? It seems like this story is changing really quickly uh, after he saw those photos. I guess when you think about it, a long time had passed since Molly went missing already at this point, and maybe he believed that they must not have much evidence against him or in the case. But when you see the picture of your car and Molly that close together, probably makes you realize it's time to talk at least a little bit. And talk he did. First, he started to say that he had driven past her and seen her and thought that she was hot. So, he turned around and tried to spot her again. He said that he couldn't find her, though, and then left the area. Police figured that, for now, that may be all that they were going to get out of him. Police continued on, though, and pushed with him to try and get him to talk. 
Rivera started to say that he blacked out at times and that he couldn't remember everything that happened when he blacked out. Ugh, that old line. Yep, and finally, after more hours and after playing good cop, bad cop with Rivera and getting immigration and customs enforcement on the phone to prove that he did not have lawful immigration status, the police managed to get him to talk with the officer who spoke Spanish and he said that he would tell her everything. To be honest, I saw the video. He just didn't want to talk to these other officers because they were bullying him and getting angry, that whole bad cop thing. He said that he remembered that he fought with her, took her in his car, and that there was blood. He also said that he knew where the body was. In the early morning hours, Rivera would actually lead investigators out deep into a cornfield, and they found a body that was buried in cornstalks. Running shoes could be seen, and they also stood out as being the shoes that Molly was known to have. There was also evidence of sexual assault. The body was found on August 21st in Pochique County, where Brooklyn is located. Two days later, an autopsy was conducted and the Iowa State Medical Examiner identified the remains as those of Molly Tibbetts. The cause of death was recorded as, quote, multiple sharp force injuries, unquote, and the manner of death was entered as homicide. Molly had been stabbed between 7 and 12 times in the chest, neck, and skull. This is that closure that families are always seeking and that we always talk about, but it's still so hard. Absolutely. I think even especially in this case, because there was certainly at least a measure of hope that she was still alive. I think that no matter what, you're always going to cling to that hope that your loved one is alive until you just can't anymore. And while that is still closure, it certainly doesn't feel like it when that arrives. The evidence seems pretty conclusive here. He led them to the place where Molly had been taken, and the police also found Molly's blood in Rivera's car and trunk. He had also essentially confessed. There was going to be a twist, though. Officers would find out that everything in the confession video would not be admissible in court because there were issues with uh, Rivera's Miranda rights and when they were read to him and how they were read to him. But we're going to continue to take a look at the timeline, though. On August 22, 2018, Rivera will be charged with first-degree murder in the death of Molly Tibbetts. Prosecutors noted that Rivera was certainly a flight risk and his bond was raised to $5 million. He would plead not guilty on September 19th of 2018. It would take until May 17th, 2021 before Rivera's trial began. There had been a lot of delays, as there always is, with court proceedings, but there was also an issue um, with the original venue for the case uh, being moved at the last minute because they felt like it was too close to Brooklyn and too much media coverage had happened. And then, of course, as we all know, we went through COVID-19 in that period of time as well, which caused more delays with the case. As the case started up, there were a lot of eyes on the courtroom. Much more than usual, even in a murder case. The case had become a major issue across the United States with politicians like Donald Trump jumping all over the case because it was reported that Rivera was in the country illegally. 
As we all know, this has been a talking point and one of the stances that got Trump elected. We all remember the wall. Oh, the wall. Yep. <laughs> we should point out here that research actually shows that undocumented immigrants are actually less likely to commit crimes than American-born citizens. However, the politics around the case was what it was. Unfortunately, many people tried to use Molly's case as a driving force to make immigration more restrictive in the United States. Molly's family, though, spoke out against those efforts and did not play nor want others to have the race and immigration cards played in the tragedy surrounding their daughter. Molly's father actually was even quoted defending Mexicans in America and saying that they were not evil as many portrayed them. In fact, saying that Mexicans were a lot like Iowans, just with better food. In the trial, the prosecution wanted everyone to focus on the video that proved that the Chevy Malibu was in the area where Molly was last seen, the fact that her blood was found inside of the Malibu, and the fact that Rivera had admitted that he saw Molly, found her attractive, ran alongside her, and that he had become angry when Molly threatened to call the police. He has also stated that he fought with Molly. The defense, for their part, tried to cause doubt that things were rosy between Dalton and Molly, of course Dalton being her boyfriend, and they also tried to say that the confessions were dragged out of an exhausted and burnt-out Rivera. The final ace up the sleeve of the defense team was to call Rivera himself to the stand. On the stand, Rivera would give a very different course of events than he had previously. He said that two men in ski masks had rushed him and forced him to drive his car past Molly as she was jogging. He was then told to pull the car over and he heard the trunk open. He was then directed to where to drive the car to the cornfield, the same field that he had taken officers to the body. He said that he had found the body of Molly in his car after the two men in ski masks took off, and he decided to take the body out of his trunk. When asked why he did not call police, Rivera said that he was afraid. This guy was for real here. Suddenly, he had a completely different story, three years later than he had told anyone. And to top it all off, this guy literally claimed he couldn't remember so many things about that day at different points but he certainly remembered that one of the guys in the ski masks went by the name Jack. Dalton's last name. What a coincidence. This is one of the stupidest defenses that I've ever heard of. I mean, I get it. Maybe the defense was grasping at straws here. We do know that in court, you only need to give like a little bit of doubt so that you don't get a guilty charge. But the story seems so much like just an incredible amount of nonsense to me. Eleven days after the trial started, it was over. Rivera was found guilty of first-degree murder, and his sentence carried an automatic life imprisonment without parole. In the United States, that means that the prisoner must stay in prison for the rest of their natural lives unless they are pardoned or moved to a fixed-term sentence. Much different than here in Canada, where the life equates to 25 years for the most part. Or less, but we won't go there right now. Let me just hide your soapbox. Judge Joel D. Yates told Rivera that he, and he alone, 
had forever changed the lives of everyone that had loved Molly Tibbetts. He told him that for that, he, and he alone, would receive his sentence. Rivera would try to appeal the verdict and get a new trial, saying that and claiming that he had new evidence and that new evidence had arisen that proved that others were in fact involved in the crime like he tried to say on the stand. Judge Yates, though, for his part, reviewed that new evidence and threw out the request and said the evidence was not new, in fact, and would not have affected the outcome of the trial. To date, Rivera is listed as being in prison at the Iowa State Penitentiary. This is a maximum security prison, and he will be living out the rest of his life behind bars there. This one was a pretty weird one. Lance, is there anything that you want to say about this? This case was, like, really interesting to me. Um, it's kind of, I like, like we said earlier, like, I always find it interesting to, like, kind of dive into cases. This actually wasn't my first choice for the Gone Traveling episode this weekend, but um, I was going to pick something in a foreign country. I won't spoil it. I do want to cover it later. But whenever you're learning about uh, crime and court cases and proceedings in another country, like, it's kind of, it's a lot of work because you have to learn about what's different, what's like the same. Like their system? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And for me, like, I, I'll just say... Um, I was going to look at an Asian country for this week's case, but because of your sister's wedding, once I started to dive in, I was like, there is no way I can get this done with the little bit of time I have to work yeah. on this episode. Because now, I mean, at least Canada and the U.S. are close. Mm -hmm. Like, when you're looking at Asian countries, you got to look at um, the way their government operates. You have to look at culture. There's mm -hmm. so much. So That's true. Even with this case, though, I did find it interesting. Um, I want to give a quick shout out. Um, one of the things that I, I watched for this case um, was season two, episode eight of Killer Cases, which is on A&E here in Canada. I don't know how, if you guys have that in the States, um, but it was really cool to watch this documentary because you got to see quite a bit of the stuff that happened in the courtroom. You got to see Rivera on the stand. You got to see um, the prosecution when they were closing their case. You got to see the actual physical courtroom, which is something that I always find really helpful when you want to augment um, learning about any particular case. Yeah, definitely. Well, and it's interesting to see like everyone's demeanor you know, how they are in court and how, who you're talking about, what their body language is and all that kind of stuff. Um, especially in a case like this where, you know, it really was random, you know? Yep. So it's kind of like you try to figure out like, like what, what was this person like? Why did they do this to somebody? They didn't have any like connection to this person, any reason to, you know what I mean? So I think it's really interesting to watch the demeanor of all the people involved in any case really, but especially in a case where there's not a reason mm -hmm. for why was this life taken and not another. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and you know, I said that like the defense was asinine in kind of the route that they went, but where else do you go? I mean, I guess at this point, what they wanted to do was portray Rivera as having been used by other people in this crime. And of course, I mean, if that story had any basis in facts, it would make sense that he wouldn't call the police. I mean, he was in the country illegally. Yeah. You don't want to make that contact and be like, oh, so hey, this happened. But I think that it was really grasping at straws. 
I mean, I think so too. I mean, that's their job. They have to do anything. You know, the defense has to come up with something. Mm. Um, but I think at the same time, because, you know, of the delay in all the proceedings, like he kind of just sat with it. Like, okay, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? And, you know, everyone was kind of scrambling. And out of all the time that passed, that was the only thing that could have maybe stuck, you know? So I don't know. I just, I'm really when I read stuff like this, A, like, they're so lucky that they got that judge who saw past everything and mm -hmm. was just like, nope, that is not happening. You're going to jail. You don't deserve anything. Like, you know, he realized that it was a senseless, senseless crime. Um, but also, it's amazing that technology was able to clone her phone and track her, mm -hmm. her running. And it's just, it's honestly totally amazing what um, what we can do nowadays, you know, and help in these things. Like, of course this wasn't solved super quickly, but like, you know, there's cases back in the day that are just getting solved now because yep. they didn't have this technology. Oh, for sure. Things so, like DNA, things, all this yeah, stuff, right? Yeah, definitely. There were a couple of things that really stood out to me here. And like, I got to give, I know I run down the police and investigations and stuff a lot. I want to say like their job is so hard. I mean, you if you watch that episode of Killer Cases, you actually see Rivera. He's exhausted in the interview room. You can see all that. This guy like literally said, I did it. I did all this stuff, took them to the body and... Then eventually, because it was deemed that the Miranda rights were not served properly, that none of that was admissible in case. I mean, in court, sorry. I mean, this was a case that really seemed like a straight up slam dunk. And then because of that, everything changed. The, the investigators had to like kind of pivot and really focus on a couple of things and hope that they could drive it home. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy like how careful and how intricate all these little things have to be when you're dealing with a case because if you do one thing wrong there's lots of cases mm. where you know they didn't have the proper signature on a piece of paper and yeah. the whole case falls apart it's true like it's crazy what they have to do the other thing that really like kind of caught my attention um when i was studying the case is one of the things that actually stood out to investigators was that rivera's choice of word wasn't that he saw a pretty girl it was like he said that she was hot or he saw her and she was sexy. Yeah, and it's, it's weird. You know, like we use these words every day. I mean, like, I'll be honest. I say there's a hot person all the time. Yeah. But it's like to investigators, they're like, that seems like a predatory word. Yeah. And like, it's also like you would say those things to like your friends, people that you're comfortable with and they know you're like joking or whatever. You wouldn't say that to a stranger yeah like you're right that's weird and it's predatory yeah it's kind of interesting you know like these are things that you don't think about um and again back to the investigators again these are the things that make them realize they might be and probably are on the right track just little things like obviously we all know which way your eyes are going when you're talking if you're making up stories or you're telling the truth they have so many tells but even right down to the words that you choose mm -hmm. to use. It's true. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, the investigators did a great, great job on this one. I think they helped uh, get this case solved. But I also really think that, um, you know, her parents, like, no wonder she was such a good parent, her, uh, person. Sorry, her parents were so great. Like, even her dad coming out and defending, like, you know, I'll say the Mexicans and not using the race card and being like, no, like, we're not here to put down everybody. 
It's yep. it's just one person. It's not a whole culture. It's not a religion. It's not about race. It's not about any of that. It's just about our daughter is missing. Yep. You know, and and he kind of like turned turned on them when they tried to make this about something else. For sure. And so like, I think it, that's amazing. It's so true. You know, like, was it a Mexican person that committed this crime? Yes. Does that mean that every Mexican is a criminal? Right. A hundred percent. No. Yeah, it's true. You know, and he didn't want his daughter's case to be dragged through the mud by politicians yeah. to get what they wanted because it was happening now and it was in everyone's mind. Yeah, it's true. It's true. No, this case was really interesting. Molly seems like a really great person from what we read and how everyone had nice things to say. And especially after hearing what her parents said and did in regards to all of that, I think really shows that like she was a good person. This wasn't just, you know, what like a person that's mostly good. No, she just seems like she had a good heart and she came from a family that had a good heart. Right. And like, you know, I even... Um, I was reading a bunch about her brothers and I think it was one, I think it was her older brother um, who like kind of even said in an interview once, like, I don't want people to think that Molly was perfect because she wasn't, Mm -hmm. you know, like she struggled with depression and she struggled with stuff in, in her life. Like there's a lot of poetry online. That's really like, she was an amazing poet. I didn't include any of that in the show, but I mean, you can find it if you want to look for it. Like, there's a lot that really tears at your heartstrings, and you can see, like, this was a good person with a good heart, and, you know, like, she she fought her battles just like we all do. Yeah, it's absolutely terrible when these kind of things happen, but especially when it happens to, you know, good people. Mm-hmm. Nobody deserves this to happen, but you always wonder why her like out of like out of, out of everything or any one that that person could have targeted like what happened there and i think that's one of the questions like we'll just never understand because you know that's the mind of people that are uh mentally Criminals. unstable yeah. <laughs> you know well and it's sad but true you know like as much as we can all plan and try to figure out how to live our lives safely you know it, <laughs> You know, I'll even say with you, I tell you when you walk the dog late at night, take your phone mm-hmm. with you. She yeah. had her phone. Doesn't, yeah. It didn't help. Yeah. yeah. You know, well, I mean, in the end it did. Yeah. You know, it in the end it did. It was probably one of the main reasons that they were able to narrow their search and yeah. try to, you know, they had an idea of where she was. But Well, okay. And something about that also that I really want to mention is they said that you know, Rivera had gotten mad at Molly for threatening to call the police. Mm -hmm. So, because I think, especially as women, we use that as like a defense. Like if you don't leave me alone, I'm calling the police, but that actually triggered him more in this situation. So maybe, you know, for us now in 2022 as women, or even as men, because things like this happen to men as well is maybe just you know, someone's bothering you, just get away from them and just call the police. Just call them. The police do not mind to call and make sure you are okay. Like they're okay with that, you know? So I think that's a really hard lesson, especially for me as a woman, as a mom, like don't threaten to call the police. If something's weird, call them. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Yeah, you know. So I think I think that's a good place to leave it. Yeah. So I mean, uh, thank you for everyone who's listening. You know, our hopes and prayers are with uh, Molly's family and friends, and we just thank you guys so much for listening today. Yes. Thanks again, and uh, we'll see you next week here on Gone but Never Forgotten. And remember, be better.